Dr. Ramsey is co-founder and clinical director of the University of Pennsylvania's Adult ADHD Treatment and Research Program and professor of clinical psychology at the University of Pennsylvania's Perelman School of Medicine. He is also a senior staff clinician at Penn Center for Cognitive Therapy. Dr. Ramsey has authored numerous peer-reviewed scientific articles and book chapters, as well as five books about adult ADHD. His most recent book is Rethinking Adult ADHD, which he will give a talk on today. Dr. Ramsey is an inductee in the CHADD Hall of Fame, and he serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Attention Disorders and the ADHD Report. You can learn more about his work by going to www.cbt4, that's the number four, ADHD.com. Neil, thank you very much, and thank you for having me, and thank you, everybody attending, taking time out of your Sunday afternoon. These are my financial disclosures. I don't have any um, relationships with pharmaceutical companies, but you can see where, outside of my salary, any income that may come in, generally royalties from works and blogs and, and the like, and talks. Uh, the objectives for today, just hopefully you'll come away with the contemporary understanding of ADHD as we think about it in the field, the implications of this understanding for, and I'm a psychologist, so I'm focused on the non-medical treatments, so I'm going to focus on the psychosocial treatment, the psychotherapy for adult ADHD, and then uh, part of the, the, the book, Rethinking Adult ADHD, um, I offered a conjecture of what I think is the main cognitive theme that you'll see in adults with ADHD. And I'll go through that at, uh, that'll be the latter part of the talk. But first, why is this important? And I always use the line uh, attributed to the uh, American author, Mark Twain, that a classic book is one that everybody loves, but no one has read. And I think ADHD is like that insofar as everybody has an opinion about it, um, but, many different people think about it different ways. So first, why is this topic even important? What are some of the difficulties faced by free-range humans with ADHD, particularly the adults? First, in terms of life impairments or difficulties, this is a, uh, a table from Steve Ferrone and colleagues, a wonderful review article several years ago now, from left to right on the timeline from childhood to adulthood, you can see the, the different impairments uh, from multiple studies that are of a greater likelihood for individuals with ADHD compared with non-clinical controls. Some no surprises like difficulties at school, difficulties at the workplace, but increasingly we're finding health implications, overweight, obesity, premature uh, mortality, unplanned pregnancies, smoking, a whole host of things that affect physical health related to ADHD. And bundled in there are coexisting mood and anxiety, as well as lower quality of life and lowered self-esteem, getting at one's sense of self, identity, how they define themselves. And from a recent study looking at the experience of criticisms by others, experienced by adults with ADHD, either adults who said they had been previously diagnosed with ADHD and they screened positive for ADHD as part of the study, or they said they do not did not have a past history of ADHD, but in the screening scale used on the study for the study, they screened positive for ADHD. So it's a mixed sample. In terms of the number one source of criticisms, 90% of them 
are from the inattentive or what are called the metacognition. So the attention is the distractibility, but it also gets at forgetfulness, poor planning, poor follow through, organizing behavior across time. So those have been the, the sources of the, the main sources of the most criticisms. And in terms of social settings and relationships, impulsivity, which includes missing out on social cues, maybe not paying it, and it bundles with the others, maybe not seeing when somebody else wants to say something and monologuing as I'm doing now, but that's what I'm supposed to do right now. Um, but, um, and maybe impulsive decision-making or inappropriate jokes or poorly timed jokes, whatever the case may be, these social snafus. And as an aside, we underestimate very often adult ADHD and ADHD in children and adolescents as well has a very public uh, presentation. It happens in the classroom where a, a, a teacher calls upon a student who said, huh, what? And they were not paying attention and the giggles and other snafus, uh, forgetting important things, forgetting to show up for a sport event when you're a player or something like that. Um, these are very embarrassing and there are ripple effects from other people, including the giggles from other classmates that again, sort of are sticky for the person and get at that, that self-esteem. In this study, the main themes of criticism uh, or what is criticized, well, some people said everything I do, but some of the usual suspects that I, I mentioned before. Um, what are the perceived cr criticisms by others? Like how are they pointed out? Um, comparisons with other people. I don't have to do this with your brother. Um, why do I always have to remind you to do things, negative judgments, like laziness, not caring, um, and a sense of rejection and alienation by the individuals with ADHD, that people ha start having less to do with them, which has been documented in stud some studies of children with ADHD. The consequences for the adults who are criticized increase sensitivity at the prospect of making a mistake, even if they don't make a mistake, and also heightened uh, sensitivity when a mistake is pointed out, and the altered self-view. It wears at one's sense of self. And how do people cope with this? They hide their diagnosis. They try to change, maybe seek uh, treatment or other support, blame other people. Well, that's their problem. If they can't deal with me, that's their problem, externalizing blame. Um, but also sometimes be trying to be more open to feedback, but also engage in self-acceptance. So it's really trying to find anything that works. And the role of support and understanding, one, what can be frustrating in that is the lack of attempts of others to have some insight or understanding about the, the effects of ADHD. And in the study, it was cited the benefits when people do take an effort to understand and maybe accommodate um, and support people and have a sense of how ADHD affects them. So there's a lot of in there, there's a lot of sources of problems, but it gives us a lot of targets for things that we can all do better. And I'm going to be coming at this as a psychologist, but some of the things I'll be talking about later who, you know, as a psychologist who provides uh, treatment, this could, this could apply to anybody helping an educator, a supportive family member or friend or a psychiatrist, whatever the case may be. But those are some of the difficulties, just a brief flyover of some of the difficulties. How do we make sense? What causes this? 
And ADHD is much more than the A and the H. Um, friend and colleague Russell Barkley says calling ADHD an attention problem is like calling autism eye gaze disorder. They're elements of ADHD, but they don't capture the essence. What is, what is causing all these difficulties? So it comes down to these are different. I, I love the phrase interdigitating modules for understanding ADHD, but they all cluster around the notion of self-regulation or what are deemed in the neuropsychological literature, even though it's out there in the public more, the executive functions. The executive functions are self-regulation. And these other things like the dopamine deficiency and the reward networks of the brain, um, the reward uh, deficiency, the reward and time discounting, meaning the farther in the future a reward is, the harder it is for individuals with ADHD to organize their behavior and maintain motivation towards that later goal. How do we understand ADHD? It's a neurodevelopmental disorder of self-dysregulation. It is a chronic delay in the onset and efficient employment of self-regulation capacity and skills. The consistent inconsistency that I, well, I'll probably speak of many times. It is not an all or nothing absence, but is, is the frustrating inconsistency or punctuation in efforts. It would be similar to, now I'm a generation Xer, so I'm dating myself back. And even though they're, um, they're fashionable now going back to vinyl albums, but if they would skip or you have a, a video download that pauses or skips, that sort of breaks things up and it takes you out of the experience or a CD skipping. I'm bringing myself into the 80s and 90s now. Um, we're talking about these things happening in daily life or in relationships. So it is a particularly confounding uh, condition that can also punctuate and inter interrupt the employments of one's strengths, talents, aptitudes, and other skills. There are many definition of, definitions of the executive functions in the uh, neuropsychological literature. I like those uh, put forth by Russell Barkley, I mentioned before, that the executive functions are really those self-directed actions, behaviors that we do to ourselves to self-regulate. If you've ever woken up to an alarm clock or an alarm on your phone, that is self-regulation. You're setting up the environment to get you to do something that you want to do. I want to wake up and at a certain time so that I can get to the flight, to work, what the train, whatever it is on time. Um, there are things that we'll do to ourselves, but other external tools that we use to manage ourselves. In the spirit of self-regulation across time, that means selecting certain goals, coming up with a plan to achieve that goal. Again, getting up on time and setting the alarm is an example of that but it could be uh, completing a homework assignment, uh, household chores, walking a dog, whatever the case may be. So enact the plan, sustaining the steps or the actions across time towards that goal, maybe in the context of others, a work group, um, a classroom, often relying on social and cultural means, the workplace, school are two of the, the main ones, for the maximization of your long-term welfare. You know you'll be better off by achieving this goal, however you define that to be, however you define that to be, sorry, but for which there's not immediate or close enough payoff or reward or consequence. And using this definition with a gentleman who had completed his adult ADHD evaluation with me, and I was telling him, 
you know, I, I, the data supported ADHD and I was giving this definition. He slapped his knee and he said, that's it. My boss always tells me if he needs something from me in 10 minutes, I can deliver it in five. If I have two weeks, it takes me a month. 10 minutes, you're diffusing a bomb. The carrot at the end of the stick is hanging right there. The reward or the consequence is right there and immediate. Everything else stops. Everything is focused. Great. How can you have ADHD when you can turn it around and handle a crisis so well? Two weeks, the logical part of the brain, ADHD is not a knowledge problem. It's a performance problem. Uh, this gentleman's brain would be going, you know what? Break it down a little bit. I want to do a good job. This could be a step towards a promotion, whatever the case may be. But some, and I'm anthropomorphizing the brain, um, but somewhere in the subcortical reward networks where maybe there's not enough dopamine to sort of give it a little boost into action. It's like, well, you don't have to do it today. You, you got tomorrow, you got two weeks. Um, but then he would put it off day after day. Okay, I've got a weekend. I have to have this in by Monday. And then Sunday night, he's pulling an all-nighter, calling out sick, making up excuses. Um, and two weeks later, he might do all right in the project. That's that frustrating, consistent inconsistency. So that's one example. And anybody can say, well, sometimes I put things off. But with ADHD, as I'll talk about later, it's a matter of degree and magnitude and difficulties. So usually most of us say, yeah, I put it off over the weekend. I didn't get around to doing, but once I get into the office or log on for my virtual work, I'll, I'll get enough done. Um, and that's fine. I believe in equifinality. There are different ways to get things, to get to the same positive outcome. So some people might wait. I'm going to wait until the weekend before or whatever. And if that works, that is fine. But with ADHD, there's, they all, uh, individuals are often trying a lot of different things and none of them work due to those, the core executive functioning difficulties. Doing a flyover on some of the published, well-normed executive functioning scales that are out there. In case it's not 100% clear, we all have executive functions. So these scales do not necessarily, aren't necessarily specific to ADHD. The Barclay deficit scale right there doesn't have an ADHD index in there, but this could be used for anybody. Um, if you have a sleeping disorder, insomnia, and you're poorly slept, your executive functioning will go down. If you're in the midst of an episode of depression, your executive functioning goes down. If you're in the midst of a bout of the flu or COVID, your executive functioning goes down. As these episodic conditions return to baseline, your executive functioning returns to baseline. The thing with ADHD, the baseline is a moving target or it's an unreliable target because it's very context specific. In some settings, in some actions, people do really well. Like an athlete might be really targeted, um, you know, focused during the sport, during the game for the entire duration of the game. Even though I've had some athletes who tennis players in a long rally or swimmers lose their strokes later on because they fade, they get distracted even in the midst of competition. Um, but um, there, there are other you know, ex problems with the executive functions, closed head injuries, uh, the effects of uh, post-concussion syndrome. But with ADHD, it's a developmental syndrome. It's been there and it persists throughout. Some individuals by adulthood may quote unquote grow out of ADHD insofar as they're no longer symptomatic, but they may be subthreshold. In a recent study doing repeated 
evaluations for ADHD with a childhood sample into the mid-20s as part of the study, they found that for some people with follow-ups, they were diagnosed with ADHD in childhood, came every few years into their 20s. Every now and again, they might endorse a couple fewer symptoms and be just sub-threshold, but then the next evaluation, if they went away to university or something like that, may be above ground. So they would be this undulating course but it was, they were always around ADHD. I think at the end of the study, only about 9% of the sample uh, went into remission and stayed there after the initial diagnosis of ADHD. So for the vast majority, majority, excuse me, it is gonna be that undulating course. And even if somebody does not fulfill the full diagnostic criteria anymore, they still might have like shadow aspects of it that create day-to-day problems for which they might want to seek treatment or at very least hopefully implement coping strategies. Um, Time management and the Barclay scale is the number one endorsed by adults with ADHD. And time management, it's also effort and energy management, how we pace ourselves um, over time. And uh, a couple other scales commonly used with adults with ADHD, but not necessarily specific to them, as I mentioned. And one thing that you will notice in each and every one of these, and it does not show up in the DSM or the ICD criteria, is emotional dysregulation. Difficulties managing the same emotional upsets any of us face in day-to-day life. It could be good news, the last day of work before you have a one-week holiday. It could be bad news. It turns out that car repair costs 10 times what you were expecting, and now you're facing the question about whether to get it, have the repairs done or get a new automobile. Those are going to be distracting for anybody, but most people, most of us without ADHD can manage them well enough, if imperfectly, but enough that we stay on track. They're just more difficult for individuals with ADHD. Hence, those emotional regulation difficulties are distinct from the common comorbid comorbid emotional diagnoses of some form of anxiety or mood disorder. When I'm presenting this talk, sometimes, especially with the DSM-5 symptoms that we use in the U.S., even though we use the ICD for billing purposes, um, bureaucracy is lovely. Um, Audience members will sometimes ask, well, the executive functions really don't map on to the core symptoms of ADHD, the core list of 18 symptoms where the executive functions are underrepresented, but actually they do. And this slide courtesy of Russ Barkley. Um, the, the core symptoms of hyperactivity and impulsivity in the DSM map on to the inhibitory facets of the executive functions, the braking system, if you will. Um, so the motor control, being able to stop one task and disengage and start something else, to be able to sit relatively still, but this can also be later on an internal sense of restlessness, verbal impulsivity, which persists into adulthood, talking over people, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, mistimed jokes or off-color jokes or not realizing how somebody could take offense, um, and also being able to screen out certain thoughts or stay focused on a task for a while mentally and with the emotional downregulation when you're upset. And then the metacognition, that is more the domain of the inattentive symptoms, 
The nonverbal working memory is being able to hold on to images in your head um, as you plan, you run simulations in your head about how you want to spend your day or where in my office, where I'm going to put things in my office. Rather than doing every possible combination, I can run simulations in my head. Verbal working memory is self-talk guiding our behavior, talking ourselves through situations and also our beliefs and aspirations and values. And then planning and problem solving. How do I handle this situation? How do I make this work? As well as the emotional self-regulation, the upregulation, making ourselves feel enough like doing homework when nobody in their right mind ever is in the mood to do homework or housework or taxes or any other of these chores, even though we know we have to. And these map onto both what are called the hot and cool executive functions. Again, the hot executive functions, the emotional downregulation, situations that are highly emotional that might even call for a quick reaction, or it feels like they call for a quick reaction, but being able to slow ourselves down and delay and pause the impulse control, delay of gratification, the famous Walter Michelle Marshmallow study, being able to sit with children, being able to sit with one marshmallow until the experimenter returns and then or earn the second one, as opposed to giving into the temptation of the first. And in some of the early studies, the findings are much more complex than this. But in the early studies, 40 years later, the children who were able to wait for the second marshmallow did better as a group on average on all, all on all outcome measures um, functioning in life, if you will. Um, than the uh, impulsive group. Again, much more complex than that, but it's still a very stimulating uh, finding. And then the cool executive functions are more our planning, problem solving, cognitive regulation. I know I could do this now, but it'll be better if I do a little work on my manuscript now, get it out, out of the way. That way I don't have to think about it later. The things our grandmothers would tell us to do, break a large task down into small steps, get the difficult thing out of the way. Now that is not always called for or always possible, but being able to work around the demands of our context and the motivation and upregulation of emotions. Motivation in executive functioning terms is the ability to generate an emotion about a task in the absence of an immediate consequence, to make yourself feel like doing something when nobody, nobody in their right mind is going to feel like doing it. And with that, also some cognitive flexibility, being able to let go of some things and move on to other things, which is another executive function that showed up in several of the executive functioning scales. But I love this lovely synopsis. And this is more a comment about the prefrontal cortex in the brain, where the executive functions are considered to be housed, even though they're more complex networks than that. But the frontal cortex and the executive functions are what make you do the harder thing when it's the right thing to do. And how many children's fairy tales are about that, the delay of gratification, the little engine of could, that could, the three little pigs, the last one built uh, its house out of bricks, which is the one that fended off the wolf and other sorts of you know, tales of the benefits of self-regulation. So with that understanding of how the field thinks about ADHD and it is well-supported by the research, in, in, effect, in fact, the executive functions, at least using the DSM criteria, are the most reliable diagnostic symptoms in making the diagnosis of adult ADHD, much more than the official diagnostic criteria where the, exe the executive functions are underrepresented. 
And in the most recent study with um, DSM-5 criteria, executive functions and the inattentive domain, that metacognition, the cool executive functions, well, both of them really, but you know, particularly that domain fused as one factor the, and the best factor for making the diagnosis. So how does this affect behavioral treatment, the psychosocial non-medical treatment? I mean, it affects you know, the medical treatment as well, but as a psychologist uh, and, other, and other helpers who are sitting across from people, helping them navigate day-to-day -day life, because my treatment, I'm not having clients look at my nose saying, okay, let's see if you can pay attention for 15 seconds, take a break. Now we're going to try to get it up to 25 by the end of the session. No, we're, we're dealing with the, the procrastination, the poor follow-through, the forgetfulness, the late homework, the impulsivity, uh, doing something that you know you shouldn't do, um, not keeping up with uh, requests from your partner, whatever the case may be. What are the premises about ADHD that guide what we do? Now, the, the symptoms fall on a continuum of severity and impact in some form starting in childhood or adolescence. That is part of the diagnosis. It is developmental. It showed up sometime, even if it wasn't diagnosed until adulthood, a good, not just a good, I would say the standard evaluation includes the assessment of onset. Did this show up during the school age years? The DSM defines the, the threshold as before age 12, but there is evidence saying that by age 16, I would say, at least for the US, the high school years, um, showing some of these difficulties because some of the early grades um, and the level of schoolwork at that time, uh, some individuals with ADHD can do sufficiently well that the difficulties, the impairments really don't show up until later. And yes, ADHD is a continuum. It is not a hard stop. Like, um, and I'm sure maybe people in medical practice will call me out on this, but identifying diabetes or some medical conditions, uh, pregnancy, am I or am I not? No, ADHD is a continuum. So even individuals might with sub-threshold features may still experience difficulties. And we'll see people like that in our clinic sometimes where we go, you don't have the full diagnostic criteria, but we don't have a better explanation for what's going on. So our treatment approach still might be um, helpful. And ADHD makes a direct and causal contribution to these life difficulties, ranging from interference this is getting in the way. I'm using too much weekend time. It's getting in the way of my family time. Everybody likes me at work. I get everything done, but it's coming at a cost for my relationships. I would call that even mild and circumscribed, but still a level of impairment if it is getting in the way of parenting and being in a relationship. Um, up to impairment, where it is getting in the way of employment status, academic status, driving, whatever the case may be. With variation, it's highly variable within and across different domains and settings, and it can also be associated with secondary skill deficits and coexisting emotional or learning issues. So if somebody also has dys dyslexia or a hearing problem, or um, also is depressed, or maybe um, bipolar disorder, uh, or a medical condition like uh, managing diabetes, these are all things like diabetes can affect attention if you don't manage your insulin, uh, that can magnify and be magnified by one, one another. And ADHD experience uh, symptoms influence the experience and performance in various life roles and endeavors with effects on sense of self, identity, and your sense of efficacy or ability to get things done. Again, it's not all or nothing, but it is in these life roles, particularly with the psychosocial treatments, the therapists, 
um, that those are the domains where people want to do better. And these are usually the targets where we went, want our interventions to have positive effects. And there's an ongoing reciprocal interaction between an individual with ADHD, their context and relationships. It affects how they view themselves in these relationships and their context and the feedback that they're getting. And these can magnify difficulties or attenuate and improve them. An understanding person, somebody who gives one-on-one -on -one attention, uh, finding a sport and a good coach where somebody can boost their self-esteem and accomplishments. It can go either way, but being mindful of both. Uh, trying to decrease the ones that make things worse and contribute to the ones that make things better, um, and also different coping strengths and talents. Uh, and it also affects our sense of belongingness and social capital, how you view your relationships or, if you will, your accounts with other people. Am I in good standing or do I feel I'm working at a deficit or a one-down position? And the experience of ADHD, both cumulatively cumulatively over time and discrete instances. I mentioned the laughter of children with the, uh, the student who got, got caught inattentive. Uh, these stick with people. People remember these very powerful one-off situations like getting, and that uh, is relatively circumscribed, but it could be things by um, being put on a leave of academic leave of absence from school, an end of a relationship, loss of a job. There are other things, uh, bankruptcy, that can stick out as very powerful one-off learning situations and quasi, if not traumatic instances. So the discrete instances has effects on information processing, i.e. how you think about and anticipate the world, think about others and think about how they view you, your, your abilities, your confidence in yourself in the form of thoughts and beliefs, as well as concurrent emotional and behavioral experiences. I'm a cognitive therapist Cog cognitions, our thoughts don't necessarily come first, but they're a useful entry point in working in therapy. But cognitions, feelings, and behaviors create like this braided cord of experience. And very often the emotions come first from an evolutionary standpoint, they were there first. Um, but often we're putting, the cognitions are putting words on the feelings. What are your feelings telling you? Um, because like I said, the, the feelings come first, but they are giving us information about our interpretation. They're signals about our interaction with our environment. Also uh, based on some universal reactions we'll have, but also based on your learning experience. So in terms of the actual treatment, ADHD is a quantitative problem, not a qualitative problem, or a different way of saying that it's a matter of degree, not of kind. So that's where you could have people falling on the continuum. There are people at the other end of the continuum, the annoyingly hyper-organized people, the person you would want to be your um, travel, travel agent, something like that, or your personal assistant who, you know, don't forget this person's birthday's coming up, get a gift, or they have a wedding this weekend, whatever it may be. Um, but it, we all have executive functions. It call, falls in the continuum of normative func functioning, but there are more difficulties, uh, the frequency and the magnitude of the effects for ADHD. Most definitely not everybody has ADHD. It feels familiar. That's the quantitative difference. Uh, and it can show up. People will, in, in clinical practice, executive functioning difficulties for people with depression and anxiety, but no hint, no whiff of ADHD. I have found the executive functioning model that I learned by uh, my specialty in ADHD is to make me a better clinician for the clients I see outside of our ADHD program. I think it's a general, generally good model. It's an implementation problem. 
not a performance problem, or it is a performance problem, not a knowledge problem. So if you tell somebody again, over and over, you should start earlier. I'll tell my clients, if we're working on procrastination and all I bring to the table is, you know what, you really need to start earlier. Sue me for malpractice, please. You know that, and I'm not doing you any good. You know that, how can we get you to perform these actions out there in the real world. And these stem from the chronic developmental difficulties related to the executive functions, the impaired self-regulation. And these deficits also contribute to the things that we actually see, the procrastination, the seemingly poor motivation, but it's the motivation in the moment of not feeling like it, even though the person wants the outcome. No student wants to not turn in their homework, but math might be really hard or they have low self-esteem or it takes, it can take inordinately long to do it. Any of those aversive things will make motivation more difficult, both initiation and uh, sustaining motivation over time to reach the outcome. Poor task endurance and some of these things that I've already talked about already. And these get magnified by coexisting diagnoses, medical conditions, whatnot. And for my money, the main thing uh, the main theme is disengagement, not the main theme of the thought, but sort of the, what draws them all together. It's not part of the double negative. It's not, not caring, but it's the difficulties getting started for the reasons I just said. So the different, how I divide up the CBT approach, there's the cognitive piece. And I'm going to talk about the, the, the theme later, the behavioral piece, meeting goals, needs, and obligation that gets at directly at the engagement. How do I use the coping strategies, the emotional theme I'd say is managing discomfort, what I call the UG feeling. I know I should work on this now, but ugh, I don't want to, I don't feel like it now. I'll do this other thing later. Then I'll be in the mood to uh, do homework, do taxes, work on the manuscript. Most likely you won't. So that's, that's that managing the discomfort than not wanting to do something. The implementation, there are specific interventions that look at the execution, moving from not doing to doing. And then the social capital, your influence with other people. And then the relationship and therapy is a crucial part of the change process. Being able to sit across from somebody who gets it um, and isn't going to sort of doubt you or now it may be accepting the frustrations of ADHD, but also gently encouraging the use of coping strategies and finding the way that works for the person, but being able to engage in that in a safe place. And I just put the star there to highlight that very often people don't think about the relationship with CBT. So briefly in each of these domains, uh, the cognitive domain, some of this is the, cl the classic thought changing, reevaluating the automatic thought. Is there a different way to think about it? Uh, reconsidering automatic assumptions, the anticipation of tasks. Oh, this is gonna be awful. Now it may be based on past experiences. I'm not good at math, writing takes me longer. And these might be accurate uh, perceptions, but there are different ways building on some of the other strategies for approaching the task and setting up realistic expectations, which are part of the cognitive domain. But then the doing that goes into the behavioral and the implementation. Um, accepting the unpleasant thoughts. Yeah, you can tell yourself, I don't want to do homework. I don't want to do homework as you get started. So you don't necessarily have to eradicate them as a precondition for getting started. And the thoughts, the cognitions, I think about them as the ligament between the intention and the action. How do we think about it to get started? The emotional piece, there is a, a wide literature on emotional labeling. What am I feeling? Putting a name on it and maybe even a more granular or specific name. This is my I hate doing homework uh, anxiety. 
And with anxiety, which is the most common coexisting emotional feature of ADHD, it is often dealing with the uncertainty. I know I can do it, but I don't know if I'll be able to do it this time. Last time I was able to sit down and write the three page essay. I'm not sure if I'm going to have three pages of words and or have the attention right now. And that can lead to the escape, which is a common feature that we see tied in with uh, the emotions um, and also a degree of normalizing the emotion. Nobody wants to do homework. Other people feel this. But can you feel this? Um, and is there a percentage of it? you're anxious about doing it, part of your anxiety means you want to do a good job. You want to get it done. And that's a layer of anxiety that it can be motivating. And normalizing it to a degree, though, also changes how we think about it, that everybody struggles with homework, even though it may look like they do it so easily. Then the behavioral is how do we actually or use the coping strategies? Um, externalizing information is a big one. Externalizing your plan for the day uh, breaking down problem solving. What is the problem? What are my options for doing this? Um, even working through your plan for a task, including task bounding, having a start time and an end, end time. I'm going to start this at nine, nine o'clock and I'll stop and reassess at 930. If I want to keep going, I will. Or it could be task bounding. I'm going to write at least 100 words or something so you can see the other end of the swimming pool and therefore calibrate yourself to reach it and touching the task. If I can log onto the computer and bring my document up, then I can work on it. But now you're dealing with reality and not the abstraction in your head. Implementation, this draws on research by Peter Gallwitzer, the if X then Y strategy. If I, and some things I just said, if or when I open the manuscript on my computer, then I will do it for 10 minutes. When or if I do action X, then I will go do goal-focused behavior Y. The social and interpersonal domain, you know, the social capital, that's something I, I've been spending a lot of more time on. And it's sort of people wielding their influence, such as assertiveness, which is an underutilized, and self-advocacy, which is an underutilized skill in ADHD because it's hard to do. We, we hear you should be assertive, but how do we do that? And this is getting more in the weeds than I will today, but... I, I break it down into these actionable steps and looking at tending to the status vector or your reputation, say at work or school where there may be performance expectations. And there are many ways to be a part of those sorts of teams and utilize your strengths. And then there's the belongingness vector, which is our close uh, emotional family, romantic relationships where there may be more unconditional regard, but it's not infinite where we might have a little more give with people, but we still wanna follow up with people and tend to these relationships. And as I mentioned before, the therapeutic alliance is important. And these are just some of the coping domains, a way to divide them up about where these skills get used. Now, as we come close to the question and answer, do we really need the cognitive and cognitive behavioral therapy for adult ADHD? Because you don't think yourself into having ADHD. So the old view was cognitions were only relevant to the degree that there was depression or anxiety where we had models for treatment and that behavior changes the ultimate outcome. Whereas now, and I'll just fly through some of the studies, cognitions are relevant in cases of even pure ADHD. Um, in fact, we could say all cases of ADHD to a degree, at least clinic referred. And yes, behavior change is the main outcome measure 
but the cognitions play a crucial role in terms of implementation, motivation, and that behavior change. So we're still in good stead having it all uppercase levels. Just some of the studies, and you have the, the citations if you wanna go through them, showing how ADHD shows up in all presentations, both with comorbid depression, or I should say the cognitions and maladaptive cognitions. Uh, it plays a role in the cognitive behavioral avoidance. That, that is probably like, I would say an evidence supported finding now. That is the main response strategy or default strategy with ADHD that causes the difficulties and highly tied in with the emotional dysregulation. Um, it, it showed up in a study of Twitter post and uh, deciphering the themes of individuals identifying themselves with ADHD. Um, and there's the study at the bottom, the emotional dysregulation is the meeting, mediating factor uh, with avoidant coping in adult ADHD. This is from one of our studies where perfectionism emerged as the number one um, which surprised me, but the number one uh, distorted thought, if you will. But as I think about it, and this went beyond the data, um, front-end perfectionism. I have to be in the mood to do it as a precondition. Now, again, we, we didn't study it at that granularity. All we know is the, the perfectionism items, but that has, at least in my clinical experience, borne out to be like one of the things. I have to be ready. I have to be in the mood. How many of us are in the mood? You know, um, I was motivated to do this today, but you know, I was in the mood to do other stuff too. And I'll be doing stuff after this. And I'm more than happy to be invited here and be here. But how often are we, if we wait to be fully in the mood any day, we get so little done. So that's part of the cognition, but also part of the emotional regulation piece. And this is an ADHD questionnaire developed by Laura Nelson colleagues. And she was originally gonna call it the avoidant thoughts questionnaire that was uh, studied in samples of ADHD. These are distorted positive thoughts, making it okay to escape. I'll, do, I'll just do this one thing first, but then you lose track of time and whatnot. So um, this actually, um, the, the book, Rethinking Adult ADHD, it was actually a 20 year answer to the question I got asked at one of the early conferences when we presented about what is the main cognitive theme of ADHD. And I forced myself to figure it out by writing the book and also with Laura's scale, the avoidance is common, but that's the outcome. What is driving the avoidance and what is the cognitive theme for ADHD? So within the cognitive model, there are different themes, even though the, the perfectionism might show up in different places. For depression, the main theme is a sense of loss. It could be the loss of a loved one and you know, a sadness, a loss of a job, loss of your sense of self or esteem, uh, loss of a future option. Anxiety, it is danger and risk really stemming from uncertainty, life being non-zero risk. I know flying is the safest form of travel, but you can't tell me this one's not going down. Hypomania is inflated gains or pot distorted positive thoughts. And even in his work towards the end of his life, Dr. Beck found defeatist beliefs in uh, patients with schizophrenia was the main theme. And I thought about this many different ways. Again, the avoidance is the outcome. What's driving the avoidance? And the emotionality drives it. But what is the cognition? And I, I, I found my solution in the work by Albert Bandura, who passed away just last year, um, and self-efficacy. And I was thinking, well, is it self-efficacy? But efficacy seemed to be um, a global theme that would be lessened with depression, anxiety, and agency. Yeah, it gets at agency, but again, that seems to be like a non-specific use of it. And in reading Bandura's book, 
um, I ran across self-regulatory efficacy. So agency is your ability to affect change through your actions. I can make a difference in my life. Self-efficacy is your ability to do so in order to pursue specific goals. Um, and then self-regulatory efficacy is the ability not just to pursue the goals, but do the day in and day out things necessary to actually accomplish and achieve the goal. So agency is the trust in your ability to gain the education and learn something. Efficacy is I found a class that will help me do it and it seems like a good match for me, but self-regulatory efficacy, will I show up? Will I do the work? Will I pass the test? Will I do all the studying I have to do? And that seemed to be, and when I read the descriptions of self-regulatory efficacy in the book, and you can read it for yourself and you have it in the handouts, this is a rewording of the executive functions. Again, depression, anxiety, this could be relevant, but these are assumed to be intact uh, for the most part and can help individuals get out of depression or face their fears in exposure or response prevention. But with ADHD, that consistent inconsistency. So that I, I have no evidence for this, but this is my clinically informed conjecture. And I hear through the grapevine, some people are taking a look at this, the impaired self-regulatory efficacy, self-distrust thoughts, or self-mistrust deeper beliefs. I know I can do it, but I don't trust I will do it when I need to do it, which leads to the, uh, the avoidance. People ask why the difference between distrust and mistrust. I looked them up. Distrust is more immediate. Mistrust is more global. And that seemed to capture the in-the-moment cognitions and the wider belief systems. So some of the tasks clarify, why do you want to do this task? Why? How does it fit into your values? What's your buy-in? Realistic, actionable plans, being able to look at your task plan, break it down into small steps like our grandparents tell us to do and see it and go, you know what, I believe I can do that and actually doing the implementation and engagement exercises to do it and then reaching the outcome and then having the felt experience um, and being able to um, uncover or I should say, yes, uncover the uh, gifts and talents that might've been covered up by ADHD and maybe discover some new ones. I'm gonna skip this just because the cognitive domain is important. Behavior, behavior change is the name of the game, but it requires some cognitions. The engagement and defining high yield pivot points throughout the day, where, when are you gonna go to the gym? When are you gonna do your homework and focus the coping on those points? And then if you can get engaged, the day looks a whole lot better. If you wanna find me, I'm very findable, but I'll let Neil um, either screen some questions or open it up so you can assault me directly. I'm interested in, I don't know, you know, if this is your area, but the interplay between ADHD and autism in clients who present with both. Um, and particularly I'm thinking of a client who, uh, an adult client who's recently explored the new, recently kind of started exploring the neurodiversity um, and is diagnosed with ADHD recently, um, also self-diagnosed with autism, has started uh, meds for ADHD and is finding they're really, really helpful in terms of focus and attention and enabling uh, an expansion of what he's capable of doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but it's kind of impacting negatively on the autistic kind of ability to self-regulate um, and kind of stay in that window of tolerance. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I'm just wondering if you have experience with that. And, and, and You know what, I, 
I have some. I can refer you to uh, Dr. Thomas E. Brown, uh, the, the author of the Brown Executive Function uh, Attention Scales mentioned in an earlier slide. His most recent book is about that topic, a few case studies. Um, and as a sister program to the adult ADHD program, it, it sort of went away after a while. But we did have the social learning disorders program that was for extreme like social anxiety uh, on falling on like the adult and well, the adult adults at the, uh, if you will, the Asperger's um, type of presentation. So I have some experience with it, but it was still a tricky one. Um, so I think they can coexist and the executive functions and the self-regulation, I think are that, that link in a way. Um, but I've also gotten feedback from people with predominantly autism and who about some of the sensory issues reported by people with ADHD. So this is going to be a very academic, I don't know, um, but it, it's just the complexity and, and credit to you for the work that you're doing in that. Um, and I'd recommend reading Tom's book because I think he shed some light on some of these things. But they would say, well, it's one thing if it's a true sensory issue versus the distraction from the feeling of the the fabric or things like, and there may be subtle differences. Now, these are the things that go beyond me. Um, so I think they're, you know, we're carving, we're carving up nature at the joint. So these categories that we come up with, there's, there's a lot of continua that overlap. Uh, what did Emily Dickinson say? The brain is wider than the sky. And so wider, W-I-D-E-R, just in case I don't want to be mis <laughs> misinterpreted. Um, so and, and with the medication piece, I, I hesitate to comment on that, but um, the, the self-regulation piece and the emotional regulation piece, so I don't know if there might be some psychosocial and self-soothing strategies or augmented medications. There are some, some of the ADHD medications do help with the emotional regulation. There are some that were previously approved, at least in the U.S., as antihypertensives that are now approved for children and adolescents with ADHD that can also have some emotional soothing effects. So uh, now I'm a PhD, I'm not a physician, so IE don't sue me, but there may be some things the prescriber could do differently. And um, so I think there, there can be that overlap, have seen it, and it's usually around the executive functions and part of that is the emotional regulation. So I probably didn't give you any guidance for anything that's gonna help you tomorrow if you see the person, yeah. but hopefully there's a couple of resources Thank you. I could, the, do you know what the oh, book is called? Um, oh, you know, you know what? I read it and I know Tom well. It, 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 I, I, off the top of my head, I don't, uh, but you know, if you go on Tom, if you look him up online, I'm sure he has it for sale on his website. He's right. easy to find, Thomas E. Uh, Brown. Right. And uh, Vicky, Vicky, oh, what was her name? Somebody had a good book on CBT for, Asperger's. Um, I, I forget. I think it was a Victoria, but I forget her last name now. Luke. I think it was a G, started with a G. Middle age working memory. <laughs> okay. No, I have that problem as well. Hi. Um, I've got three children. My eldest has ADHD. Um, he's now an adult. Um, he has autism and he has ODD. My middle boy mm. has just autism, but it's my daughter that I'm really struggling with. She has ADHD and ODD and she's completely different to my eldest um she's getting herself in situations that are frankly quite dangerous <laughs> um she's almost 14 so she's not an adult but she will right. be one day um so i'd like to help her now i've been trying to help her all her life but i'd like to help her now before sure. she gets to an adult um but the odd right. and the adhd 
seem to battle each other. Um, I don't know if you know what ODD is. Not many people do oppositional, see Oppositional is. defiant disorder. No, I know yeah. pretty well because we see it in adulthood. And that was how the emotional regulation piece of the executive functions with AD or with ADHD came to light because that now makes sense. The ODD connection with ADHD stems from that. The, you know, the very reactive young person, that's part of that self-soothing. I mean, I can recommend, there is a book by Russell Barkley and Arthur Robin, R-O-B-I-N, um, Your Defiant Teen, T-E-E-T-E-E-N. Um, it's a popular book based on evidence done by Russ Barkley and Arthur Robin, um, and it speaks to the, the, the oppositional defiance. So, um, and I think Ross Green, G-R-E-E-N-E, also had a book about your explosive child. Again, similar, I think, trying to um, provide some guidance for the type of situation you're facing. And don't underestimate the benefits that you are. You know, your presence and your empathic fortitude, it, it, <laughs> these are delayed gains. They don't uh, often don't um, seem like they're paying off at the outcome, but you're, you're being there and being a resource. These are these, these longer range gains. So I hope you don't underestimate what the good you're doing for your family. And hopefully you're taking care of yourself a little bit in there. I'm trying very, very hard. No one seems to want to help. I mean, the children um, mental health service don't want to touch her. So uh, anything that I can do, any research that I can do, I mean, I'll look those books up. Thank you. You know so what? Much um, for those. In, in England, uh, you probably know her. I mean, she's, she's you know, wide, I, I think she's widely known. I greatly respect her work and her as a person. But Susan Young, um, she and Jessica Bramham several years ago had their cognitive behavioral therapy for adolescents and ADHD manual, which I think the world of, um, but I, I, I'm not sure what she's doing now, but she might, I, I think she has a web, website or a program where she might, you might check her out in terms of any referrals she might have or materials she might have on her website. I'll look her up. Thank you so much. That's very helpful. Thank you, Gemma. Much appreciated. Okay. Um, next question is, it's, it's someone from, uh, they want to remain anonymous, but the question is, is CBT not a method of training neurodiverse people to behave like neurotypical people to reach neurotypical life goals? How does it differ to masking, which we know leads to poor mental health? I, I can see how that, but at least how we approach it we talk about making informed decisions because goodness of fit is crucial. Um, and there are many people we've worked with who, you know, they're struggling in college and university and sitting with them and, and exploring the struggle. Um, what they want to do doesn't require, they want to do something else. It could be a different major within school, but it could be, I find I'm really good at fixing cars and I really like that summer job I have. And I want to, you know, do that more. And so sometimes it is, and we've had like family sessions where it could be the family coming to terms or not realizing and the person giving voice to it. So um, I, I would say that's at least how we view it. And, and I'm sure many of the colleagues I talk with and, and who, you know, at least in our field of ADHD who are sitting across from people, very often it is pursuing things that are better fits that may not it, it it's it's about the right of self-determination and and may or at least exploring what might be better fits if you find this isn't a good fit but we find by trying so um that that's how we view it it, it does have 
it, it can smack of being very mechanistic. How do we get yourself to contribute to the gross domestic product? And for some people, they want to do their job better, but that can lead, again, when you get in there, sometimes it's like, all right, is it you or is it the job? And is this the best fit for you? So I, I hope that, you know, and I expect many of the colleagues I know, we, we've shared similar stories where, you know, somebody has, including people who decide to move home because they do, you know, adults decide to move home because they need some better structure for the time being to launch. So I think, I, I believe in that equifinality, there are different pathways to get to a similar positive outcome or, but also that similar positive outcome might change from the course you set, set out on. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure if that's reassuring. Yeah, you know, people can have bad experiences where somebody's, you know, if all you have a hammer, everything looks as it like a nail and trying to do better at school when somebody goes, you know, what? it wasn't until I failed out of school that I was able to do this other thing that I'm really good at. 100%, 100%. So we've got one minute left. Um, so time for a quick question. Um, another anonymous one here is, I personally struggle with time management and how to deal with deadlines that are further away in comparison to closer ones. I tend to leave things to, to be done to the last minute because of the time pressure working as motivation. What advice would you give in order to work through tasks in good time to avoid stress? There's a facet of procrastination called procrastivity, and it is avoidance of a priority task like that long range thing by doing a chore or something else you might have put off. Uh, mowing the lawn instead of working on homework or a college student doing their laundry instead of you're being productive and you might have put that off. So what I did, and it's in the book and it's a worksheet, it's um, I reverse engineer procrastination, uh, procrastivity is what it's called. I didn't name it. Urban Dictionary said it's been around since 2010, as much as you can believe that. So I say, well, it tends to be more manual and hands-on. Um, clearer steps for getting started. You've done it before. A clear sense of making and sustaining progress. And there's a clear endpoint. <sighs> the laundry is done. And I said, are there ways we can map these on to the longer tasks? So there's this, it's clumsily named, but it's, it's my, my fault. And I stuck by it and I still do called the how you don't do things form because it comes from, all right, how am I able to do this procrastivity task and avoid this other thing, even though I might've put this off. So it's, it, it's down to a series of steps, how you can break down in smaller, sooner increments for the larger task and the task bounding that I talked about before. We all know all of these things, but it's externalized and it's a sequence and it has the FX then Y strategy. And it also has places, once you have the plan in place for what you're going to do today tied into the larger goal, um, how might you think yourself out of it? How might your feelings get in the way? And what are your escape behaviors? So if only giving a form to somebody um, would be enough, uh, and I'm a longtime soccer fan, soccer player, somebody would have given me a, a form for playing in the Premier League somehow, and I would have done it. Uh, but until that form is available, it's the best we got. But it, 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 it is a synopsis of some of the skills we're doing that very thing. And if you want to email me, I'll send you a copy and that's open for anybody who wants it. Fantastic. Okay. Well, Dr. Ramsey, thank you so much for this excellent presentation. You, you do talk fast to be fair. Um, and you've, you've managed to pack so much value in there. So I really appreciate it. And I wish you the best luck with your work going forward. 